Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It's The Wonky Show. This week, we talk about private school students and number caps. We meet Rory and talk research care leavers in higher education and other taxpayers getting what they pay for we've also got yes but does it correlate and hidden history it is all coming up the, i mean the interesting question my my friend Stephen westlake posted this on twitter just this morning you know why is the taxpayers alliance doing a report on university managers pay but not say on bankers pay uh, and if you know they try to claim as they do at the top of this press release that universities are funded by taxpayers uh, and students if that's the answer Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm Rachel Firth and here to get podcast done. As usual, we have three fabulous guests. In Sheffield this morning, we have Professor of Research Policy in the Department of Politics at the University of Sheffield, James Wilsdon. James, give us your highlight of the week, please. Well, we uh, launched a new institute this week, which I'll talk about later. I think the highlight for me was uh, Nature, the journal Nature, uh, published uh, one of its, uh, what we sometimes call in sort of science communications, uh, one of its Voice of God editorials, these, these big editorials in mm-hmm. front of Nature, uh, uh, all about the stuff that we've been doing that week. And I mean, those editorials are, are, are obviously entirely at the discretion of Nature's... Uh, Editors, you never know when one's going to emerge and on what topic. And this, uh, yeah, so this has popped up uh, on my Twitter feed. And in London, we have Chief Research Officer at the Institute of Student Employers, Tristram Hooley. Tristram, give me your highlight of the week, please. I have submitted my latest book this week, which is a, a, an edited collection about the uh, career guidance in the Nordic countries. And in Wonky HQ, we have Wonky's Associate Editor making her debut on the Wonky Show. We've got Sophia Rupek. Sophia, give me your highlight of the week, please. Uh, so mine will be a bit a bit self-promoting as well. So I, I wrote a piece on um, data and early career researchers with Interfolio that came out on Monday. Um, and on the same day, I went to the, the launch of the Research on Research Institute uh, and read one of their first reports on access to PhDs and where PhD grads go. So that report and the piece I was writing about about data fit together in a really a really good way. Right. We start this week with the ongoing discussion about a motion passed at Labour Party conference last week calling for fee-paying schools to be integrated into the state sector. As an interim step, the motion said universities should cap the proportion of entrance from private schools at 7%. Well, this week, a leading head teacher warned that this would lead to a brain drain in which bright students would go abroad to study, as they may miss out on a place to study in UK universities. Sophia, it's your first time. It's the first section. Why don't you kick us off on this one? Yes. So Headmasters and Headmistresses Conference, the HMC, um, is an association of, of private school head teachers, and they criticised Labour's plan to cap private school places at 7% of university admissions, as Rachel said, um, which is in line with uh, the proportion of children attending private school in Britain. Uh, Chris Ramsey, who's the chair of the, um, the the conference's universities committee, said that universities would find it really hard to fill places with, um, and I quote, appropriate students, um, and suggested that modern languages departments um, and other departments might shrink um, in response to, to this uh, policy from Labour. Um, and on Wonky this morning, um, DK said that universities that are often put down as insurance choices might be hit hardest by by this change. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, 
I suppose they would say that, wouldn't they? Is the uh, sort of uh, obvious answer. Um, I think. Uh, I mean, obviously, there are there are some details, and there may be some subjects which uh, are overwhelmingly recruiting from independent schools. That seems to be a problem to me that that we should probably be more concerned about than the fact that we might have a year when there's there's less people uh, enrolling in that subject. I mean, if we if we've got certain subjects where there are. Um, massive overrepresentation of, of people from independent schools. Then that's, I think, that's an issue that we should look at. Mm. I think, in general, we should be clear that this this isn't going to be a brain drain. This is going to be a, a rich kid drain. Um, and it may be that there are some people who don't study in, in UK universities who otherwise would have done. But it's probably much more likely that some people who went to independent schools no longer go to uh, elite universities and have to go to the same universities as everybody else. I probably don't cry too much about that as a as a possible outcome i don't think it's a disaster for them and uh, i i think that it i think there's certainly a need to look more radically at some of the issues around the way in which independent schools dominate the elite institutions of this country as an observer rather than an expert this it does seem a rather odd place in the system at which to intervene to achieve this outcome would be my main uh policy observation. Clearly, there are lots of very good reasons to look at the status of independent schools and change their tax status and all these other things that one could do to try and make them uh, less dominant in various ways. Uh, and I fully uh, agree with all of that. Um, I, I, but I, I, it seems to me a very uh, uh, clunky and rather um, complex way to sort of start intervening in, in direct number controls on, on different subjects in different institutions uh, in this way and I'd much rather look at other ways of obviously uh, expanding access uh, at the entry point to university, changing the, the, the uh, financial status of independent schools and, and also, this makes me sound very uh, unfashionably Blairite, uh, raising the quality of schools across the board and uh, the various fees into universities more generally such that this becomes less of an issue. Uh, you know, I uh, that surely is, is where we should be focusing most of our effort. Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. My name's Paul Grotrix and I'm registrar at the University of Nottingham and also a contributor regularly to Wonky. I've done a piece this week about the latest letter from uh, the Secretary of State for Education to the Office for Students. This fits into a, a series of letters going back to uh, 1996 in which ministers and secretaries of state have issued their instructions to the uh, primary regulatory body um, in England. So I've been collecting these for quite a while now. And I was therefore very excited to report on the, the latest missive. This is, in fact, one of the shortest on record, but that's probably due to the fact we had one only six months ago, and therefore there isn't actually that much to say. But it is uh, quite directive, covers quite a few of the uh, the big issues, from TEF to PQA and admissions, value for money, unconditional offers, students as consumers, and, of course, Brexit. The most surprising thing about the letter, apart from its brevity, obviously, is that it's very, very personal. The Secretary of State no fewer than 22 times begins his sentences with the first-person singular, and there are 16 other uses of I in the letter as well, so it's a very, very personal letter. And he also expresses enormous pleasure both about the robustness of the Office for Students' approach on access and also the rigorous decision-making in relation to registration of new providers. My favourite bit in the letter, though, is he exhorts the Office for Students to exercise your powers boldly. And that phrase is picked out in bold type, which I think is a nice touch. Anyway, we also get, excitingly, the first outing for Gavin Williamson's signature, which we add to our gallery alongside others. Not as good as Vince Cable's smiley, but, you know, it has its charm. 
So there's an awful lot to enjoy in the new letter, and I can't wait to see how long the next one is. Hi, I'm Sarah Gosling. I'm the University Engagement Advisor at YGAM, the Young Gamers and Gamblers Education Trust. As a generation of digital natives arrives at university, we've been looking at the attitudes and experiences of higher education students around gaming, gambling and digital resilience. YGAM found that one third of students said they were not easily able to switch off from their mobile, and nearly half the students we connected with spent over four hours a day on a digital device. 79% of students play digital games, and 35% game regularly. YGAM's research established a link between regular gaming and an impact on academic performance, possibly for the first time, with nearly half of students who game regularly saying it had got in the way of their academic performance. Looking at gambling, we learned that 16% of students can be identified as moderate risk or problem gamblers, but over a quarter of a million students in the UK at some risk from gambling. And 88,000 can already be defined as problem gamblers. And don't forget, we would love to have your contribution on the site. If you'd like to pitch us a piece, just drop us an email on team at wonky.com with your idea and we will be in touch. Now, next up this week, we saw the opening of RORI, the Research on Research Institute. So meta and such another great acronym added to the sector vernacular. RORI is an international consortium of research funders, academic institutions and technologists working to champion the latest approaches to research on research. James, this is very much your baby. Please tell us more on this one. Uh, so Rory, yes, is a new thing. Um, it is the uh, coming together of four organisations in the first instance, two universities, uh, Sheffield and uh, Leiden University, which has this uh, very uh, well-respected and, and long-established centre for uh, the study of science and technology and research in all sorts of ways. Um, and then uh, alongside us, we have the Wellcome Trust, uh, bringing with it connections to a whole range of research funders uh, within the UK and internationally. Um, and we have the technology company Digital Science, who, uh, for those who aren't as familiar with their work, uh, bring all sorts of different uh, data tools, platforms um, to our understanding of research systems. So things like the Dimensions uh, tool, uh, Altmetric, the donut you get on journal articles, uh, and various other things that are all part of, of Digital Science. Um, the reason they've all assembled uh, Avengers style to tackle these issues is a, is a sense that um, firstly the uh, research system or research systems are facing a whole range of uh, challenges on an unprecedented scale ranging from just the scale and sheer volume of research happening around the world to all the uh, um, demands being placed on research uh, you know governments wanting research to produce this and that new devices like challenges and, and missions being imposed on the research system the drive for interdisciplinarity concerns over uh, the reproducibility the integrity of research uh, the whole drive towards more open research all of these different things are swirling around the research system and making the need for better uh, evidence on how we run research systems how we govern them how we manage them effectively uh, more important than ever uh, and so the aim of rory is simply to uh, put a real boost behind those efforts um, and to do it in a very uh, co-designed, co-produced way. So it's bringing the best of sort of academic uh, insight on these questions together with a large consortium of research funders. Uh, so beyond Welcome, then there's another you know, 15 or so funders from all over the world who've come together. Uh, and together we will be doing work on questions like how do we design grant allocation processes to be more efficient, less burdensome? Should we introduce things like lotteries instead of, uh, you know, responsive mode systems where 
success rates are very low. Um, how can we incentivize uh, uh, better research cultures and, and tackle issues of uh, equality, diversity, inclusion, uh, a whole host of things. So it's, a, it's an effort to kind of do this stuff together with the funders uh, in a very applied translational way. And in that way, we hope accelerate the uptake of good practice. Sophia, I think you were at the launch, were you, this week? Yes, I was. Yeah. You're excited about this? Yeah, it was, it was really exciting. Um, and I was especially really excited about their first report, um, or one of, their, one of their first two reports on um, 21st century PhDs, um, uh, which, which um, emphasises that we don't have enough data on PhD students um, and what they do next and how they're doing. And um, yeah, I was, I was really excited about, th- about that report. And it really tightly framed um, the debate around PhDs for me. Um, it, it, it said that there were these sort of three dominant narratives about PhD students. Um, either, either sort of more is better. So meaning if we want to increase our research capacity, we need more PhDs. Um, or more is worse. So, uh, you know, there are so few jobs. Um, PhDs can feel like academic pyramid schemes. Um, or the sort of more is different. So we need to make sure we have a more diverse range of people doing PhDs. Um, and all these narratives, um, are, are conflicting, but also overlapping. So I thought, I thought this, this report about, about PhDs was really exciting and, and made clear to me how Rory can, can bring together, um, lots of, lots of great, great work and people. Mm, indeed. Trisha, as a, as a chief research officer, do you, do you welcome another body that's going to be talking about research on research? Uh, well, I suppose there's a bit of a worry that you end up like a snake swallowing its tail, isn't there, with this kind of thing. But um, I mean, I think there's lots of really important questions with research. Um, I think there's lots of uh, important sort of political and philosophical questions about the way universities organise research and whether it's really producing the kinds of things that we find useful. I certainly have found the REF process to be one that has sort of driven a lot of narrowness in the way people think about research and has defined research quality in a way that I find not very helpful. But I suppose one of the questions I'd be interested in hearing from James is whether it's whether this is going to move outside of the university, because there's an awful lot of research which is going on outside of the university in places like our association, um, which which I think you know you might there might be some interesting questions to look at what the difference are is are between academic and poly, more policy focused research and so on yeah no i mean it's a very good point and and i would wholly agree that that uh, um uh, it's it's crucial to have that broader sense of of the totality of research activities going on uh you know not only in in institutes and uh, non-profits but also of course in in industry where uh, you know r&d is a uh, well, not as, as as big an activity as we would like in the UK, but still significant. Um, so, no, we are. I mean, I, I guess the distinguishing thing for our the approach for it is it is looking at research systems. So that brings with it that uh, uh, more holistic focus. And we aren't really focusing on universities as a sort of unit of analysis uh, so much as uh, funders as a source of revenue or you know as a source of support into the system publishes as a route to, to disseminate it uh and um uh you know technology platforms of various kinds as a way of analyzing it um there are issues in how well any or all of those things funders uh uh, through to the rest, capture some of these less, if you like, conventional inverted commas forms of research as captured in, in you know, journal articles, etc. Um, but with the rise, particularly of things like alternative metrics and, and you know, more all-encompassing 
search engines, you know, Google Scholar versus uh, Web of Science, you do pick up a lot of uh, research that is um, uh, taking place and materialising in, in places well beyond uh, your, your, your conventional journal. Indeed, I mean, as I, I mean, I myself, most of my work is published in those sorts of places. Every week we are delving deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here is Hidden History of HE. So Tony Cosland uh, decides that there aren't going to be any more universities, but he decides that the expansion that uh, he needs in higher education is going to come through a new type of institution. So Cosland makes his famous Woolwich speech. He talks about how we should have a public sector of higher education um, and starts to set about the process of thinking about how that might be. And that leads to a white paper on polytechnics, the idea that we should start to have a different type of institution owned by the local authorities, responsive to local needs, and Crossland says that we should have uh, these universities shouldn't be caught up on um, the uh, snobbish um, sense that they all had to be universities. He wants to stop them from from going on and becoming universities. He wants to stay where they are, and that's underpinned by a, a theory that uh, one of his advisors, Till Burgess, has of academic drift. That what happens is that uh, a local college gets above its station effectively and develops more and more uh, um, higher education, and becomes a university, and then ignores its locale afterwards. So he wants to fix the polytechnics in their place. So there's a, uh, another one of those great exercises where local authorities get to bid to have uh, their institutions turn of the bid. The idea in this case is not a completely new institution, uh, but to see whether or not your technical college has got enough uh, critical mass of full-time students that it might become a polytechnic. Uh, and so there are various different bids, and that involves all the local authorities thinking how they can amalgamate their higher education into, into a sufficient mass. Now that means, particularly for the polytechnics, that they have to be in existing la- uh, large areas, because there isn't enough critical mass out in the countryside where they put some of the new universities so the polytechnics are all uh, start off being based in in larger city centres which often means that the poly turns up in a city that has already got a university because by the time it's got there it's had an old university so the poly comes along so in terms of spatial policy it's useless because well the polys just end up in the same cities as the universities but um, they they get going and they pull those things together now some places don't get to have their poly so Hull um, really looked like it was going to be a leading contender to have uh, it's polytechnic, but it didn't come off. There was you know, arguments, uh, and in the end, the, 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 they didn't get a, a polytechnic in Hull. And other people were kept waiting. Um, there were discussions about which bits would get merged together. But the idea was to create uh, this public sector. Now, the other clever thing they managed to do is they used the kind of scheme that they'd done with the Colleges of Advanced Technology and have a body to approve the awards. And this is the CNAA, the Council for National Academic Awards. And this innovation allows government off the hook of giving degree awarding powers out to all these different institutions and allowing them to say, look, we're just going to have this one body that would prove them. And the the masterstroke for the CNAA is that they don't go for the London model of setting the exams and making the students do it. They allow the courses to develop with the institutions. The institution can bring much more of its local flavour. There's a coordinating sense so that a degree in business is broadly similar um, across the the UK, but actually you start to get quite a lot of local variations. And that include some of the really innovative things, the negotiated pathways leading to degrees and independent studies, and you you get quite a lot of of distinctiveness that comes out. And it develops quite a good corpus in terms of, you know, understanding how courses work, develops quite a lot of um, good practice, and the the concepts that really underpin the CNAA tradition underpin quite a lot of what then becomes part of HQQC and QAA. The idea that it would be quite a good idea to think about a course before you started it, quite a good idea to be have quite a lot of transparency about the information, 
uh, in time it becomes a vehicle for considering that modules might be a good way of organising them. But none of that set down at the start, but, but you start to get much more of a kind of development of a homogeneity of how you might organise courses, which puts the UK on a pretty good setting. So the Polytechnics head off in that direction. They survive the change of government in 1972. Now there's a good chance that when uh, the Conservatives took over they could have killed off two things. They could have killed off the Open University and they could have killed off the Polytechnics. But Margaret Thatcher likes the Polytechnics. The Polytechnics are um, kind of business orientated, they're trying to develop skills, they're quite up for um, offering um, uh, expansion uh, and not complaining about it too much. And there's a great, um, again, on the file of the National Archives, an example where um, leaders of higher education were invited along to meet the Prime Minister. They were invited to dinner at number 10. Uh, and there's a great briefing note that explains to Ted Heath exactly what status these, these people are. So there's these lovely little vignettes against each of the vice-chancellors saying which ones are clever and which ones are, uh, which ones are, uh, know what they're doing, which ones look a bit bumbling but actually quite bright underneath it. So there's, th- there's that kind of stuff, the kind of stuff that you probably get given now uh, when you go to these kind of things. But there's a general summation of the two camps. Vice-chancellors are concerned about the role and standing of universities. They suspect that the government underprice them and do not consider them relevant enough. Whereas, on the other side of the binary line, the polytechnics are generally in good heart. They have their preoccupations. Chief amongst them is the need for greater clarification of their role, particularly in relationship to the local authorities, and the massive expansion, trebling, of student numbers following the white papers. So the polytechnics have gone in to see Ted Heath, saying, yep, we will treble our numbers, we will go for expansion, uh, and they will pull that off. So that kind of sense of the Conservatives can look to polytechnics to be the kind of organisation to come on and develop them is, is something that underpins Margaret Thatcher's time as Secretary of State for Education right at the beginning of the 70s. Next up, we're going to talk about care leavers. But first, Wonkfest, the Higher Education Policy Festival, is coming. Yes, now at a brand new venue, the most exciting event in the UKHE calendar is only a few weeks away. We have a two non-stop days of ideas, new thinking, analysis and debate. You can choose what to focus on and build an experience that will be the most valuable for your professional role and organisation. At Wonkfest, we bring the sector together to tackle the... At Wonkfest, we bring the sector together to tackle the big issues, the ongoing challenges and discuss how we keep our sector thriving, no matter what the political weather. Speakers this year include Chief Wonk, statistician and editor of 538, Nate Silver. We've got Shirley Pierce, who's leading the independent review of the TEF. Chair of UKRI, John Kingman. And we are delighted to announce that the Minister of State for University Science, Research and Innovation, Chris Skidmore, will be delivering a keynote speech at the event. The sessions range from headline plenaries to masterclasses and from interactive workshops to fireside chats. You will never be too far away from a new idea or useful insight, old colleagues and new connections from different and unexpected parts of university life. And if you are a Wonky Plus subscriber, your tickets are discounted. The past two years we've sold out, so head to wonkfest.co.uk to book your tickets and to find out more. We cannot wait to see you there. Right, next up, Care Leavers and a report from the Leventune Trust and the University of Sheffield. The report finds that 27% of students who have left care find the culture of drinking and drug use difficult to cope with. Tristram, what did you make of this report? Uh, yeah, it was, it was a really nice report from uh, done by some researchers at the University of Sheffield. Uh, the stuff about drinking and, and drugs is interesting, but it's a fairly small part of what they're actually talking about. So the, the, the report really says only about 12% of care leavers go on to higher education. And then it talks about how um, care leavers often find that transition from being a young person who has who attracts a whole load of support as a as somebody who's in care to being an independent 
person with no support network a really challenging transition and I think you can really imagine how difficult that would be if all, all of your family and everything just kind of fall away when you leave home and go to university and it talks about some of these issues of transition how universities are not always set up to support care leavers um, and you know for example a lot of people go home in the holidays and a care leaver may not have an obvious home to go through to but it's also got some really nice stuff in it about how some care leavers feel that this is an opportunity to kind of reinvent themselves and to create an identity other than that of somebody who's in care and that university can be a really positive place. I thought the the thing that I was disappointed in in the report that I would have liked to see some more on is that there's really nothing about uh, post-university transitions and, um, and career, mm. which obviously is one of my interests, but I think it's a really important part of, of this question. And I really hope that if they do more research, that's an area that they will focus on in the future. I have read the report. Yes. I, and and I, I know of the researchers, but don't you know work directly with them. But yes, it's uh, beyond just the contents of the report. This, I mean, this is to my mind, exactly the kind of work as well that we as a system should be supporting more of so there's clearly a lot of 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 detailed research that underpins this but the report itself is something that's been produced with support from the Levy Human Trust with support from the uh, impact funding that we get as a university from ESRC uh, and 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 it's you know distilling and com- communicating all of that work in a in a very um accessible engaging way to a wider audience of you know policymakers practitioners so uh, as well as its detailed recommendations i think is exactly the kind of thing uh we as a system uh need to do more of and i'm very proud and pleased to see that Sheffield is you know in there doing it with this and, and indeed in other areas no indeed indeed so in terms of the recommendations in the report i don't know if anything caught your eye or anything kind of popped up for you yeah I, I thought it was um interesting to see that uh, i felt like they didn't have consistent advice about um financial help from councils um so i read that that one uh, for one student that the council uh, for them said that they'd pay for their fees and then retracted it um which uh, which just seems like something something quite practical to solve making sure that you're providing care leavers with really good consistent advice about about um finances and whether you can can help help them financially um i also thought the, the bit about accommodation was interesting um uh, you know so so i i read about some uh, care leavers being moved around campus to um during the year and uh, potentially to accommodate conference visitors or or for for, for various reasons mm-hmm. um so i think making sure that 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 we provide um, care leavers with, a, with the possibility of accommodation for, for a whole year. Um, so you have a home in the same place. Um, I think that seems, that seems to be really important. Now it's time for yes, but does it correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's associate editor, David Kernahan. Welcome to Yes, but does it correlate? The podcast segment that would never be caught using a disposable cup. With elections and area-based measures in the air, I've gone back to plotting constituency-level data. But does the percentage of people in a constituency with a managerial job correlate with the polar young participation rate? Are white-collar jobs an indicator of HA-related aspirations? Yes, but does it correlate? Okay, I reckon it probably does. Um, I think what, what the number of people in professional occupations measures is the essentially the kind of wealth of or, or, or affluence of a particular area and uh, attendance at university broadly works uh, is measuring a similar thing for most most of the time so i would think it would correlate my only uh, question is that it's also often noted when people talk about polar that our postcodes and particularly our constituencies are much more mixed 
than we might imagine and mm. so it may be that there's too much noise in the data for, for that to be as clear as we might like well i i'm going to agree with tristan i'm going to say uh, yes it does but probably quite weakly and i think the point about you know data you know signal noise is probably quite pertinent and it's the kind of thing that dk would dissect with relish so uh, yes but with not enormous force and the answer is yes r squared is not 0.6 which is a decent correlation if perhaps not as clear as you might expect for fun i've plotted the size of the parliamentary majority as the size of the marks and also given you the opportunity to filter by the percentage of people that are estimated to have voted leave in 2016 It seems like the types of employment prevalent in a constituency are a good predictor of young participation. They're likely to be linked to parental education and earnings. Data is from the House of Commons Library and OFS. And where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. And finally, the Taxpayers Alliance has this week released their University Rich List 2019. They say that this research should help students press for the best value from their tuition fees, as well as help taxpayers hold universities to account for the money that they are spending. So, Sophia, what did you make of this, please? They um, put together some freedom of information data from the last three years um, and found that um, around three and a half thousand members of staff across 120 universities were paid over £100,000. And of these, um, around 800 were paid over £150,000. They also um, found that there are only uh, small correlations between the number of highly paid staff at a university and student satisfaction and employment rates. Uh, So it's not clear that in order to get the best, you need to pay for it, um, as some people say. Um, And there was some analysis by DK and Jim earlier this year uh, that suggests that publishing uh, VC pay levels can weirdly lead to them accelerating um, as universities learn what they're competing with. I mean, it's, it, it seems that the, the Taxpayers Alliance um, uh, uh, wants to make wants, wants to make people angry uh, about about <laughs> about university pay, um, and um, I think it's interesting that um, that the pay clearly hasn't gone down in response to, to consistent outrage. Um, and, and actually, it seems like it's it's going up. Uh, yes. Um, I, I mean, I'm not a great fan of the Taxpayer Alliance. I'm not really sure they should get as much coverage as they do. Um, it's very, very kind of politically motivated. I, I think there are two key issues here. And one of the things that this report does is it muddles them in a, in a sort of deliberate way to try and uh, lead people. So the first issue is whether we view higher education as a social good as well as an individual good, and therefore whether it should attract some public funding. And absolutely, I think, yes, of course, it should. Uh, The second issue is what are appropriate pay differentials within the sector? And I'm quite, you know, I find this more interesting. And I think there is certainly a case to say that pay differentials are too large and that the average amount that somebody's earning within the sector is too low. And then the people at the very top are perhaps too high. I think that that's not what the Taxpayers Alliance are trying to do. I mean, I would like to see people on the median income and on the lowest incomes in higher education paid a bit more. Um, and I think that that's, that's sort of exactly what the Taxpayers Alliance would be against. So, so I think we should be very careful about using their stuff. But there is an important, there is an important discussion to have about pay within the sector, of course. You know, I don't find those numbers very uh, uh, surprising, given, uh, you know, the, the, the kinds of 
skills and, it, and funding indeed, streams it, and, and the, the competitiveness of talented people in, in, you know, highly skilled areas of the economy. The, I mean, the interesting question, you know, my, my friend Stephen Westlake posted this on Twitter just this morning, you know, why is the Taxpayers Alliance doing a report on university managers' pay but not, say, on bankers' pay? Uh, and if, you know, they try to claim, as they do at the top of this press release, that universities are funded by taxpayers uh, and students, if that's the answer, well, of course, you know, uh, we, the taxpayer, have been underpinning and underwriting the financial system to an enormous degree uh, over the past uh, decade. Uh, so let's see the same kind of data on, uh, on, on the banks and let's consider the contribution they make to society compared to the contribution we make as a sector. Then let's have that debate. No, I, indeed, I wanted to pick up on one point that you mentioned there, James, which was the, um, you know, you take it by an average of, across the entire sector, so it works out about 30 per institution, and I, and I take that point. However, there are um, two universities that have got over 300 people that earn over 100,000, um, and then we've got three that have got 200 people that earn over 100,000. So there is a, a, there is a cluster of, of institutions that disproportionately um, against the rest of the sector. So I don't think, I don't necessarily think if you were to scrutinise the sector, of course, we can take it as a, you know, as a um, uh, an average per institution. But is it not right that we can scrutinise individual institutions, perhaps? But is that is that not that's not still not really very surprising to me? I mean, I think if you think about some elite institutions, firstly that they can be massive, so that the number of kind of senior management roles that you might see in them would be higher, and secondly, they can also have some you know, really global levels of expertise. And, you know, if, if somebody's the kind of leading expert in genetics worldwide, is it really shocking that they're paid over a hundred thousand? Um, I mean, you know, I don't find it really shocking that that, that, it, that, that might be the case. And so I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, 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 I find it really surprising that it's actually that low. The numbers, really. I mean, I just wonder whether whether all those universities at the top of at the top of this this um, this list, um, whether they all pay the real living wage to, to their to their lower paid staff, um, because three hundred and thirty five um, people at Edinburgh on, on over a hundred thousand does sound like like a lot to me, um, but I don't know. I think it'd be interesting to compare to compare this this list with um, lists of universities paying the real living wage. No, I mean absolutely, the focus should be very much on pay differentials. Absolutely, a focus on on the lower paid roles and indeed on on other uh, non you know academic staff etc. But if you're looking at those very uh, the kind of top tier of academic salaries in this country, most of those people will be bringing in many multiples of their own salary in grant income and will be effectively supporting the jobs of many other people uh, in the university and the wider research system. Uh, some of that money they'll be bringing in is, of course, also, in one sense, public money because it's from research councils here. But a lot of it also will be international money, international foundations, global funders, uh, and private foundations like you know, the Wellcome Trust, the Gates Foundation, particularly if you're in biomedical uh, areas of research, which is where a lot of the higher salaries uh, uh, you know, reside. So you can't, you get, you can't really look at the system or look at this issue in without some of that other data in front of you in order to properly understand what what's going on here um i can tell you as a as a professor <laughs> uh, uh you know our pay has not gone up uh in any you know beyond the kind of one percent or whatever occasionally two you know peg to inflation mm. for, for for the last 10 years or more i mean i earn you know so I, I, I really don't think <laughs> there's some big scandal here. Um, 
uh, and I think Tristram's original point is the one to focus on, uh, we really do need to tackle precarity in the system. We really need to tackle it at the early, uh, earlier career stages uh, where there are huge problems in terms of, of, of both salary and just the, the, the sustainability and the, and the security of, of careers. Um, but I don't think um, whipping ourselves into a, a you know, f- fake hysteria about a few people is, is really the way to, uh, uh, you know, address that. So that is about it for this week. To find out more about anything we've discussed today, you'll find links on the episode page at wonky.com, where you can also leave your thoughts and comments. Don't forget you can subscribe to us automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on your favourite podcast directory, or you can find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you think you've got what it takes to be a guest on the show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we will be in touch. So thanks again to our guests, James, Tristram and Sophia to everyone at Team Wonky for making this show happen and of course to you for listening to the very end and until next week stay wonky Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like European linen premium luggage options buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50-80% to less than similar brands Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.